Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Glani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Peter Buckley. Dr. Buckley is a psychiatrist and expert in schizophrenia who became Dean of the Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine in 2017 and served as interim CEO of the VCU Health System from January to September of this year. Prior to coming to VCU, Dr. Buckley also served as Dean of the Medical College of Georgia at Augusta University from 2010 to 2017. In addition, he serves as a member of the Board of Directors of the Association of American Medical Colleges, the WAMC, and is Chair of the Administrative Board of the Council of Deans of the WAMC. Dr. Buckley, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Shiv, it's a real privilege. Look forward to chatting with you. So we like to ask our guests in their own words, kind of what attracted them to medicine? And then specifically, you have a pretty amazing background at the intersection of neurobiology and schizophrenia. We'd love to hear about how you chose not only medicine, but then psychiatry as well. Great. So Shiv, let me be brief. I uh, come from a medical background. Turns out my grandfather was dean of a medical school in Ireland, which didn't make a lot of significance to me when I was younger. But both my parents were doctors. And so I kind of fell into medicine. And then my father was a family practitioner, and it was planned that I might end up taking over his family practice. And so that seemed to be my destiny until I did my medical student clerkship in psychiatry. And I was extremely taken by just how debilitating mental illnesses were and also just how significant they were on their impact in society and on individual lives. And I was particularly drawn to the issue of schizophrenia for both those reasons, but also because the science of schizophrenia was just captivating to me as a medical student. So I had a kind of epiphany that I was going into family medicine, you turned and went into uh, psychiatry. And I have to tell you, it's maybe a little embarrassing, but for my Christmas present, my mother gave me a textbook on psychiatry and a book on the psychopathology of mental illness for Christmas. And I lapped it up. And I really, ever since then, I had my focus on schizophrenia and was fortunate to be able to pursue that. And then was extremely fortunate to be able to go from Ireland at the end of my training, having had a schizophrenia fellowship, to go to Case Western Reserve University. Within three months of me getting there, one of our patients was on the front page of Time magazine, and there was a six-page article about mental health, schizophrenia in our program. So I was just captivated by the decision and by the focus on schizophrenia. So that's kind of in a nutshell the journey, and I feel very fortunate to have had those opportunities. Still disappointed that we're not where we should be in, in both the ability to understand the biology and to treat schizophrenia, however. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating condition, obviously quite debilitating. Before I went to med school at Johns Hopkins, uh, I read this book called Crazy Like Us by Ethan Waters, who his wife, I'm sure you know, is a psychiatrist at UCSF, uh, Rebecca Waters. And it was about how the cultures we're raised in will influence how these psychiatric conditions, whether it's anorexia or schizophrenia, will manifest and how outcomes could be even better in some places that have less 
biomedical frameworks uh, like Tanzania, apparently people with schizophrenia do better. So when I saw that in your bio, I was pretty excited and interested to hear your take on how psychiatry has evolved and how much more important mental health is now because of COVID. Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, You know, the CDC did a evaluation of thousands of people in early June, and they found that 41% of people had either a negative mental health or a behavioral symptom, and about 30% had anxiety or depression or trauma, and about 10% of the population were suicidal. And so we knew to begin with that there is a lot of mental illness. Schizophrenia turns out is one of the least common of mental illnesses, but depression and anxiety and trauma are ubiquitous human phenomena, unfortunately, that result in mental illness. But now compounding that is this kind of public health disease, if you like, that represents anxiety, loneliness, worrisome, and and also depression and suicidality directly attributable to coronavirus. And it may well turn out, Shiv, ultimately in the long run, like 9-11, where the long-term morbidity is actually more mental health than physical health. Obviously, time will tell with that. Wow. Yeah, that is, it's the second or third order effects of, of what we're seeing right now. And so, exactly. uh, you know, going, switching gears, I know, I know we'll get back into mental health, yeah. especially in your role as, as the dean of medical school. But can you tell us how you got from being a world-renowned researcher and psychiatrist into academic leadership, you know, not only of medical school, but then an entire health system earlier this year? Sure. So I was fortunate to go to Case Western. And then I ended up being medical director of a state hospital while I was at Case Western. And I was very young in my career and young in age. And it was a phenomenal opportunity. I was so, so fortunate to get that. And my mentors had really kind of set the stage for me. After about six years of that, I uh, had the opportunity to go to the Medical College of Georgia. I got to tell you, Shiv, it wasn't the best job advertised in America because the prior chair of the department had been incarcerated for 15 years for research fraud. And so it was a department that was in the doldrums. And I was fortunate to be competitive enough to get that job at the stage of my career. And then we embarked in a remarkable turnaround of that department, which was really quite invigorating in itself from a leadership perspective. And we also worked with the state of Georgia, which had a lot of mental health problems, as well as additional scandals. And we were able to help the state improve its mental health system. So all of that gave me a lot more experience in administration. And then we got a new president and I had the opportunity of becoming interim dean of the medical school, and I kind of didn't see it coming. And I said I'd go as an interim and try it out and see, and I was fortunate to be appointed permanent. So that's how I came into that role. There was one positive wrinkle to it as a slight deviation. A couple of years before that, I had a job in addition to being chair of psychiatry 
as associate and then senior associate dean for leadership development. I basically ran uh, executive searches, which turned out to be a fantastic experience. But as part of that, I got nominated and was fortunate to be accepted into a Council of Deans Fellowship at the Association for American Medical Colleges, which you mentioned at the onset. And that was a kind of boot camp for trying out whether you'd like to be a dean or not. And that was another very formative experience. So for people that are listening in, I always think about careers as some mixture of careful career planning and then leaving tremendous amount of space for serendipity because you never know. Here I am in Richmond, Virginia, and I'm originally from Dublin, Ireland. Who knew? Yeah, I love that. I mean, we have a, a term I really like is engineered serendipity, which is uh, you're obviously, you know, in Virginia and up the road from where you are in Charlottesville. Um, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, I'm a firm believer in luck. And I find that the harder I work, the more of it I have. And so I imagine that some of the serendipity you're seeing is just the, the great work you've been doing. So we've had several deans of medical schools, Mark Schweitzer at Wayne State, Mark Schuster at Kaiser Permanente, George Daly at Harvard Med, appear on Ray's Line podcast. And one of the questions we like to ask all of them is how they see COVID, like what, what immediate changes do you have to make as a dean of the medical school due to COVID? And what are some of the longer lasting changes you think will stay, both for medical education as well as for healthcare as a whole, as a result of this pandemic? Yeah, fantastic question. We're very much struck with our responsibility to train the professionals that that we had going through our medical school. And so none of us had the opportunity to simply take take a year out or take months out. And so we had to pivot like the other colleagues that you mentioned in their schools. We had to pivot to online training to make sure that we kept the trajectory of training going. I think that's been mixed, but I do think there are elements of online training that we will keep that are here to stay in in medicine. I'll give you a fantastic example. So, of course, we're like any other medical school. We do our admissions process and we look and interview people. Of course, this year we couldn't interview them in person, so we had to interview them, you know, virtual interviews. Well, when we got that far and when we had, let's say, about two-thirds of the class created, we actually had a Zoom meeting with all the people that had decided to come to our school and a lot of them that hadn't quite decided. And we were able to do one more sell of our school and its worth to those that were already sold as well as those that were making up their mind. I'm thinking, like, we must do this every year. This is a good thing to do. It was born out of that crisis and the management of admissions. But in fact, this is a good practice. We need to continue that. So I think we're going to see some of those throughout the curriculum. We've clearly implemented changes in the curriculum already. Obviously, crisis management, population health, health disparities. How could we not? inculcate them more into our medical student training, given the year that we've had. Because these are not one-off events. We've just been made so clear that these are so formative important. So there's an example. Pre-COVID, we were seeing about 80 people a week by telemedicine. Enter COVID, we flipped to telemedicine, 
And we've now been doing on average about four and a half thousand visits a week. So there, that's, that's here to stay. The nuances of it may change, but that's here to stay. That means as we train our medical students and our residents, it's no longer something that is like boutique or good to have. That's a must have. It's the, you know, the equivalent of what was the stethoscope and might now be the ultrasound, but it's something that has to be part of our training. So I see a lot of that, uh, very much those changes. And then also, I think our profile of large classes to small classes, you know, medical school was shifting already from the kind of 200, 300 classroom format to more interactive individual learning. I think that's going to accelerate that further. And then the other issue, of course, is the whole transition from medical school training to residency, that's been disrupted mightily this year. We don't know how it'll, the story isn't told yet, but there'll be changes out of that for sure that will impact probably fourth year and through the first year of residency. So I think we'll as a community end up implementing some of these changes, cataloging as a community some of the others, and it will really make, when you look three to five years out, I think medical school training is going to be very different as a result of this pandemic. And I'm optimistic that it'll be better, not worse. Yeah, no, that that's great. It's like a, it's been a forcing function, obviously, as you mentioned with, exactly. with telehealth is one example. You know, another area that I know is, is of deep interest, we had Michael Gustavuson, who's the president of UMass Memorial Medical Center on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was the one who also told us about the double order of magnitude increase in telehealth. He also talked about how UMass, um, in, the, in the midst of the pandemic, you know, half of their med- fourth-year medical students graduated early and became interns or super interns. I'm yeah. curious how, what the VCU experience was, as well as what you think about the idea of... Um, scope of practice changes, not only from maybe the nurses being able to do more of what the primary care docs were doing and, you know, et cetera, but also like, you know, I, I imagine a lot of your students stay in Virginia, but those who leave, you know, interstate compacts and any of that, if you comment on some of those changes. Sure. The issued scope of practice, telemedicine's an obvious area where you redefine that and a lot of how we're beginning to try to figure this out is sometimes people will have a telemedicine visit with a APP or a nurse first and then with the physician and then follow up with a physician or with a nurse. And so it allows a much greater flexibility. I think we're going to see more of that. I also think we're going to see more involvement of allied health professionals. As you know, with telemedicine itself, it begs the question, of what is the difference between practicing in Richmond to Charlotte versus Richmond to Malibu. So those interstate compacts will make a big difference. Shiv, I'm very reminded as a doctor who's come from another country that this is still very much the United States of America. So it's highly regulated within each state. And that's obviously to protect the public and to ensure accountability and regulation. But some of these disruptions kind of beg the question as to why something, if it's a standard of care in one state, why is it 
not right in the next state. And I think we're going to see more of that. There was a first party or question that I'd like to return to you had asked that was different from, from this issue of scope of practice. Yeah, I was just asking about, uh, you know, some schools, a lot of schools actually graduated oh, the fourth year. fourth years earlier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So we were again doing this like other schools. So we have a third year into residency program that we've been doing as a pilot for about the last two years. And it's gone very well. Again, I could see that because as you correctly said, people graduated early, they put on their their full white coat rather than the mini coat, and they went to work to battle against the pandemic. And so that's kind of pushed that issue further forward. We're on the process to look at that further. We've been doing it systematically. I think we'll just have to wait to see how that plays out. But I would not be surprised if that uh, chips away at that fourth year, which is uh, you know, different as to how valuable it is across all health systems. And some medical schools are further along in terms of that. And so it seems like it is something that might make its way. The other thing to, to point to that, Shiv, is again, a lot of what the fourth year was, was people going on electives to other institutions and also spending time interviewing and getting on planes to go to other institutions. Well, we're not doing any of that these days. So a lot of potential for change, and it's not all bad. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've seen that across remote work and most companies, as most as we've been in a distributed work environment from the start, but a lot of our colleagues yes. who weren't are seeing, yo, it's actually really nice to not have to commute and save that money. And I think it levels the playing field because I know people applying to medical school or applying to residency have often have to choose how many places they yes. apply to or interviews they take because it's expensive to, to fly around. I remember when I was applying to med school. However, the reason I said earlier that, you know, we still don't know how it'll play out. You're so right. There's less expense on the student, but there's also less reason for them not to apply to 70 odd places, which is 70 more applications that the particular program director has to evaluate and then do that through a Zoom. So it's going to be very interesting to see how this year plays out. You know, you're you're very active at the AAMC, I mentioned, and there's two topics wearing that hat that I'd love to get your thoughts on. The first is, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported that there's been a 20% increase in applications to medical school, uh, which maybe is driven by the fact, like the stories of the pre-meds they interviewed were COVID has made them even more excited about being able to be in this much needed healthcare heroic position. So I'd love to hear your, your take on more enrollments in med school. You know, there's still going to be shortages. There's still a GME shortage. So yes. even if we increase the number of med student seats, like, can we actually increase the number of physicians out there? And then the second is student debt, which obviously has played a big role. And, you know, AAMC has continued to show the median student debt has increased year over year and now is over $200,000. And hopefully my hope is that a society will realize that we shouldn't be saddling our healthcare heroes with this much debt and figure out more sustainable ways to train clinicians. So would any commentary you can provide on, on both those would be very yeah, interesting. Yeah, they're, they're uh, terrifically salient points. On the first issue of more people going into medicine. I think it's a terrific profession. And uh, obviously, so do lots of people and more each year. But there was recently, a couple of months ago, there was a public survey done 
comparing the uh, public trust in various professions. And doctors and nurses scored higher than any other profession at an 85% rate, and quite frankly, higher than any time in decades. And so we're riding on an all-time high, as you said, the kind of healthcare heroes, the excitement of medicine, the ability to be altruistic and do good, the marriage of science and then healthcare, and then population health, our whole discussion around drugs to market for COVID and vaccines and the race and how science is informing that. That is all, imagine if you were a younger person seeing that, how mesmerizing, how enticing that could be as a healthcare profession. So I think we're already seeing the rebound of that. I think we're going to continue. Obviously, from an industrial point of view, healthcare is a huge business. It's 17 point something, about 5% of the GDP. So it's always an area of growth. And there's job security. Physicians are fortunate to have job security. So it's a very wordy profession that I think this is all attracted addition interest to. Your comment about the debt is uh, very correct. And it's a perplexing issue. I think I'm a more an optimistic, as you've already seen in this interview, but I think there's a silver lining here. I've been uh, very impressed by the altruism shown to medical schools over the last number of years. When I was in the Medical College of Georgia, we had an alumnus that gave $10 million towards a new medical school building that we were very grateful of. And then in his bequest, we had a $66 million gift to scholarships for medical students and endowed chairs. And we've seen some of these enormous so-called transformative gifts at other medical schools. And they're not all by alumni, they're also by business people. And so I think, Shiv, as you see the public perception of the value of health and the value of healthcare workers, we could see beyond alumni, like the individual in Georgia, we could see wealthy people in the community really want to invest in medical school scholarships as an investment in the health of the nation. And I think that may provide an opportunity for us in the role as deans to extend our efforts in scholarships. We've been very grateful for some of the coronavirus donations that we've had by the community, but we're also looking to pivot back to our regular philanthropy. And one of that is the opportunity around scholarship and the opportunity to raise more money that can again feed that support and interest that you alluded to earlier. That's great. I'll echo that by just saying that we've, we've had, um, so we work with NYU and had the opportunity to get to know Ken Langone. Yes. And, and uh, he and his colleagues have done a tremendous job of making that a uh, debt-free class for a couple of years now. And then the second is Morehouse. So another guest we've had on on the Raiseline podcast is Tom Frieden, who runs Bloomberg Philanthropies and was the head of the yes. CDC before. And um, Bloomberg Philanthropies just donated you know $100 million to HBCUs, including our collaborators at yeah. Morehouse, to drive diversity in medicine, which is a tremendous gift. 
So these are not one-offs. These represent a change in our field and in our society and a different viewpoint of the investment in scholarships. So we're hoping to work with that as well. I could imagine so. So I'm respectful of your time. And so I just had two last questions for you. The first is, I mean, you, you're going to have a, this career as a researcher, physician, uh, academic leader, health system leader. Would love to hear the advice you would give to people right now considering careers in healthcare as a result of the pandemic or not. Sure. So as we were talking about, it's a great, it was before this a great time to go into healthcare. It will remain a great time. I think we're going to see more transformation now over the next five years than we've seen over the last 10 years. And there are phenomenal career opportunities. You asked me about my own experience and how I got to where I got to from Dublin, Ireland. I also had the opportunity of going back to Ireland, but I chose to remain in America because of the healthcare and the professional opportunities. They are boundless. So I'm full of excitement for our own medical students and our residents for what's ahead of them. I think we have yet to see the greatest generation of doctors to come as a result of this experience. And the opportunities are phenomenal, phenomenal. Now, my last question is, is do you have anything else you'd like uh, our audience of uh, millions of current and future healthcare professionals to know about you, about VCU, about meeting the crisis of the COVID moment or beyond? This is a remarkable experience that we are going through and have gone through. And it's obviously not one that we would wish to have, but there is opportunity to learn, opportunity to grow, opportunity to make our health system better. I will tell you, Shiv, as a doctor that's been doing this for decades, I've never experienced a degree of public support and just high regard for healthcare professions. We're on an all-time high, and that's an opportunity for our colleagues to come in and to set their expectations for their careers. I think we will do very well over the long haul. We're stuck in the middle of a disappointing and a distressing pandemic, but it will have its day and we will be left with the great American resilience that characterizes this country. And we will be left with a, a workforce that their own resilience has carried them through in their training and in their early years as doctors and as healthcare professions. So I believe that when the die is finally cast and everything is added up, I believe that we will emerge much stronger as a nation and as healthcare providers as a result of this pandemic. Well, I really appreciate the optimism. And uh, and again, just you taking the time to speak with us today. I know you're extremely busy running a medical school and contributing to the health system. But Dr. Buckley, thanks for taking all the time and what you do to raise the line and improve our healthcare system's capacity. Thank you, Shiv, and I wish you all the best. Thank Likewise. you. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line since we're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.